Well, good morning. We are going to continue in our adult Sunday school hour going through systematic theology. And before we dive in, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to look into your word this morning. Your word is true, and it is powerful, and we know that your spirit delights to illuminate our eyes to your glorious truths. So we ask for your spirit to be at work this morning. Pray that you would help us to understand what it is you've communicated about yourself, about who you are, about how you act, and your glorious grace through salvation. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are planning on finishing up our final doctrine in soteriology this morning. We've been studying this doctrine of soteriology, which just simply means the doctrine of salvation. And in looking through this, we've talked through uh, what's often referred to as TULIP, or the doctrines of grace, or Calvinism. And in this study, we've talked through the first letter, which is T. T was total depravity. We talked about how due to the fall, all of us, in regards to um, every part of um, our human nature, and all of us corporately, all individuals, are corrupted by sin. And according to scripture, we are um, unable, or there's an inability in us to choose God due to our fallen nature. So speaking of total depravity, we would say in regards to salvation, it shows that salvation is needed, that we have a need for salvation. In regards to the letter U in Tulip, we, we looked at unconditional election. And for unconditional election, we saw that God in his grace chose before the foundation of the world those whom he would save. And he did this not based on any goodness or choice of man, but simply by the amazing foreknowledge, or what we looked at as the foreloving choice of a sovereign God. And in regards to salvation, this doctrine shows us that salvation was planned. It was planned according to scripture by God the Father. Thirdly, we looked at the letter L, and Pastor J.D. walked through what's referred to as limited atonement, or what we like to call particular redemption, or definite atonement. And in this doctrine, we saw that Jesus died on the cross in a personal and a powerful way, that his substitutionary death accomplished salvation for the elect, and that this was both the intent and the extent of the finished atoning work of Christ at Calvary. And we would, along with Scripture, testify that Christ's work on the cross is sufficient for all, but efficient for only those who believe. And in regards to salvation, this doctrine, we would say that salvation was accomplished. It was accomplished by Jesus Christ, God the Son. And then uh, last week, we talked about irresistible grace, the letter I in the acronym TULIP, irresistible grace, or what we could call effectual grace or effectual calling And in this doctrine, we saw the Holy Spirit never fails to bring to salvation those sinners whom he personally calls to Christ. He inevitably applies salvation to every sinner whom he intends to save, and it is his intention to save all the elect. So in regards to salvation, we would say this doctrine is salvation applied. It's applied to the believer, and we talked about regeneration and faith. In regards to that doctrine. And today we're going to do our our fifth and final letter of the acronym, the P in TULIP, which refers to the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. 
Sometimes you'll hear this doctrine referred to as the preservation of the saints or God's preservation. So in this topic, what we're trying to address is, is looking through all of Scripture. Again, that's what we're doing in our doctrines, our ologies, as we study through systematic theology. We're looking to, to hone in on the topic of eternal security. Some would refer to this doctrine as once saved, always saved. But in regards to salvation, what we're trying to look at is salvation fulfilled. Fulfilled, or we could say sustained, or carried out, or followed through, guaranteed, completed, finished. That's what we're looking at this morning as we talk about this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And this doctrine really seeks to answer a couple questions. One question we could ask is, can true Christians lose their salvation? How can we know if we are truly born again? And so this is a really personal and important question. So this morning, we're going to study the perseverance of the saints. To give us a couple of scripture verses to kind of focus our attention on this morning, uh, we're going to look at several, but to kind of set our minds on this track, these are two verses that we actually talked about as well last week in regards to irresistible grace. So these are the same passages, and it's, it's fitting that Scripture puts them side by side of talking about what God will do and how it ends. And so John 6, 37, Jesus is speaking. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John six forty four. Jesus continues. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And, he says, I will raise him up on the last day. So there's two um, opposing positions that can often be taken um, as we've been talking through this study, the Arminian position or the Calvinist position. First, let's talk through um, the Arminian position. There's not um, a long list of statements. It's very um, simple for us this morning to kind of articulate the distinction here. Uh, From an Arminian view, they would say that according to uh, the positions that they've already discussed, we've already looked through in the acronym TULIP that they've opposed, they would say that you can lose salvation and that your salvation depends on man's faith. And I put a little asterisk there because, to be honest, we want to accurately articulate opposing views. And we want to understand that there are some Arminians who hold to a sort of preservation or perseverance of the saints. They have what they would call a doctrinal position of eternal security, which we'll talk about a little bit today. Eternal security uh, basically is a doctrinal position that believes that there is a one-time act of faith from man that guarantees they go to heaven. Even if they lived a life in total rejection of Christ after that, their momentary work of faith grants them eternal life forever. So that's a position that some Arminians hold, but I think a logical conclusion of the positions that have been posed and, and stated by the Arminian view is that there is no eternal security. There is no um, sureness and secure salvation because man has to participate. It depends on man. And if man's faith wavers or fails, then their salvation is no longer actual. In opposition to this, we would say the Calvinist view, as we've been studying through uh, these doctrines, would say that you cannot lose your salvation. It is not possible for a true believer to lose their salvation. And the reason is because ultimately salvation depends on God. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and it is his work that he does from start to finish. He gives good gifts, and he gives and works salvation. 
So we would say um, in regards to this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints, here's a, a definition we're going to work through um, today as we look through Scripture. So here's, here's the definition. All those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power. That's the idea of preservation. And the definition continues, will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. So there's, there's two ideas tied up in this doctrine that we want to address biblically this morning. We want to address, first of all, God's preservation, and second of all, the perseverance of the saints. This idea that in preservation is that God will finish what he has started. And we also want to address the issue that true saints will ultimately persevere to the end according to Scripture. So our ultimate authority, though, is God. And so we need to believe that we believe that he has spoken through his word. And so we must submit to his word, not systems, but to scripture. So let's first look at what scripture says about this idea of preservation. Preservation. Preservation is a work of God. God's preservation of his saints is described in scripture as a Trinitarian act. So let's look at some passages first regarding the work of God the Father in preserving salvation, preserving his saints. If you flip with me to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 is a great passage in regards to all these doctrines of grace that we've been looking to. So if you have one kind of key passage, Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 28 through 30 really, and even through the end of the chapter of Romans 8, should be starred in your Bible in regards to soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. It's a very important text for us, and we've referenced it several times and want to reference it again in regards to this idea of preservation. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 29, Paul's writing, and he says, For those whom he, referring to God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So we're referring to God the Father here. In order that he might be the firstborn among brothers. And he continues in verse 30, this process that we've been talking about, this golden chain of salvation often referred to. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what's important for us in regards to this doctrine we're talking about this morning is to notice the tenses. The tenses mentioned in this verse, and it's easy to read through a familiar verse and to miss details like this, but he actually says those whom he called, past tense, those whom he justified, past tense, those whom he glorified, past tense. And the interesting choice here in the verbiage and the, the tense is that Paul is communicating that God the Father in such confidence and surety of the salvation that he's accomplishing, it's as if it's already done all the way to the end. That's what's important for us to capture is that God the Father is working salvation from start to finish. And from his perspective, he is outside of time. And this tense that's communicated here is an idea that it carries itself all the way through. There are none that are lost in this process. Those who foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. There's no buckets that are lost in between. This week I was thinking about uh, Russian nesting dolls, right? If you put one larger one and, got, and, tar, and 
uh, on, on the smaller Russian nesting doll, um, there's nothing that's lost, right? It's containing the entire object. And then you put it in a larger bucket that says, hey, everything in here is what was contained previously. There's nothing that's lost in this process. So if God has started the work, he is sure to complete it. Also, I wanted to look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. Jesus is speaking and teaching um, in regards to the, the idea that he, he poses and, and pronounces for his audience to hear is that he and the Father are one. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And he says, No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is a very important verse in regards to security for the believer in salvation. If Jesus was speaking here, some would say, well, I believe that, that God will keep me, but um, an Arminian would say, he's not saying here that I can't jump out. Some would say, yes, Jesus has me in his hand, and the the Father has him in his hand, but that doesn't mean I can't, of my own will, jump out of his hand. And just think about, if that's really what Jesus was communicating here, it totally undermines the point of the text, the point of what he's communicating here. The point he's communicating is that they will never perish. There's an absolute statement here that if they have eternal life through Jesus Christ, they will never perish. And they take this analogy and they forget the statement that's made ahead of it. And they try to to interpret it through their own theological lens. But what's clear that Jesus is communicating here is that there is none. So I don't think Jesus is saying no one except for yourself is able to get out of the Father's hand. It's clear what Jesus is communicating is that there is no way for your status, for your position to change once you are made new through Christ. And that's the security we have in Scripture referring to God the Father. We also see in Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes and he says, I am sure of this, that he, being God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's referring to this idea that he will carry you all the way to the end, to the very end. Peter also writes in regards to his opening letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, referring to saints, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to something, he says, to an inheritance, which is this living hope that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, he, he continues to expand. He says, this God who has caused us to be born again, he says, who, so he's talking about people, not the inheritance here. He says, who by God's power, referring to the us, are being guarded, he says, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's by God's power that we're being guarded for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. These are verses that that are clearly articulating that God the Father is at work 
preserving those he has chosen according to his own good will and pleasure. But scripture doesn't only just testify to God the Father's preserving of his people, but we also see God the Son as well. We see God the Son in work, where he's working to preserve his people. In John chapter 6, verse 37 through 39, Jesus is speaking. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I, Jesus is speaking, will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, referring to the Father. And then he articulates what this will is. So we've already looked at God the Father as preserving And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm in line with God the Father. I'm doing the same work that he's doing. And he explains here in verse 39 what he means. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but, he says, instead, raise it up on the last day. This is the work of the Son of God. And we see Paul laying this out in Romans chapter 8. If you still have that open, we can continue reading through that text some would say, well, there's, there's this idea that you're reading into it, that there's no, none that are lost, and you're reading in eternal security. But Paul actually continues his argument to articulate for us what he actually means. He's articulating and continues in verse 31. Paul's writing and saying, what then shall we say to these things? How should we understand what I just said? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn, Paul writes in verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These verses here propose to us that part of our security is the fact that Jesus died and was raised again. This is the amazing love of God. And if he has given up his only son, would he at that point say, now that I've redeemed you, it's your job to keep it? No, he he has showed such amazing love. He will finish what he has started. And we see that in the propitiating work of Jesus Christ. Not only do we see in this sacrifice, but Paul also mentions a second idea. He says, who indeed is interceding for us. And the author of Hebrews picks up this same idea. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Consequently, he being Christ is able to save to the uttermost, that is perfectly, completely, or eternally, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
The point of this passage in Hebrews, the author is emphatically trying to make, is that Jesus does not save his people in a manner in which salvation can be forfeited or lost. It is a sure salvation that is completed perfectly and eternally. When we think about this idea of, um, of Christ being our high priest and the one who intercedes for us, um, you can look at John 17 would be a key passage, the high priestly prayer of Christ, and look at the content of his prayer. But I also wanted to bring up this idea of um, comparing these um, instances and examples of Christ's prayer in the Gospels. And you can compare the two um, instances of Judas and Peter. Judas and Peter both betrayed Christ. Christ knew that both of them would betray him. And when you sit those passages side by side, what you see is that what Jesus says to Judas is what you do, do quickly. But it's interesting what he says to Peter instead. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But, Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And what he says right after that, he says, and when... And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's the confidence in the power of Christ's prayer for his saints. He prayed for Peter so that he would not fail and confidently said, when you return, when you come again, strengthen your brothers. That is the high priest we have. Hebrews also speaks of Jesus in uh, verse 12, or chapter 12, excuse me, verse 2. Jesus is titled the founder and perfecter of our faith. He not only starts it, he's the one who brings it to its perfect completion, to its end goal. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, Paul's writing, and he says, So that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this future end in view. And he says, Jesus Christ is the one who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the amazing work of God the Son in our lives, in sanctification, in this process. He is keeping us all along the way. But not only does Scripture testify to God the Father and God the Son preserving their people, his people, what we would say is also that God the Spirit is preserving as well. Preservation of God the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we see um, twice in this letter, um, Paul mentions this idea of the security that we find in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts for this purpose. He says, as a guarantee, a guarantee. Again, in chapter five, verse five, Paul writes and he says, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Paul's writing in um, the book of Ephesians as well. Ephesians chapter one. Second to Romans chapter 8, you could start Ephesians chapter 1 as a really important chapter in regards to the doctrine of salvation. And in verse uh, 13 and 14, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, 
So at the point you were born again, he says, you were sealed, he brings up this idea again, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul again in chapter 4, verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this idea of sealing, this idea of guarantee, the promise of the Holy Spirit is given at the new birth. And when we have the Spirit's indwelling in us, it's a guarantee of, for believers of a future inheritance and glory. Uh, I came from the mortgage lending industry before coming into ministry full-time, and the common most uh, thing that came to my mind is earnest money. Those of you that have bought a house or have been involved in the process, when you put in an offer on a house, it's not a same-day deal. You don't just get the keys the same day you, you offer to pay money for something, but there's a loan that usually has to take place in a process. There's a title search and paperwork, and so in that contract, there's often earnest money. This is an upfront payment that you make to the seller of the home saying, I am in earnest. I am making a genuine, real offer to you that I'm going to follow through and give you the full payment that's due. So they could say, hey, I'm going to offer you $250,000 on your house, and I'm going to give you upfront $2,500 in a check. As soon as you accept this offer, I'll write the check, and that's my earnest money that's yours to keep, showing that I am going to follow through and we're going to close on this date. And that's the same sort of concept that's here in regards to this guarantee that God has given us in the Holy Spirit. That there's a guarantee of a future fulfillment. And some would say, well, in our experience, we can even say that people back out. Their, their loan falls through and sometimes people lose their earnest money and they don't follow through on the contract. But what we forget in that analogy is that it's God who's making the offer. It's God who's writing the check. He doesn't need to get a loan He's not waiting on anything else. It's in his good time. And so if he's promised and is earnest, would God deceive us to say, here's a guarantee, but not going to follow through because you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. No, that's not what we see in Scripture. What we see is God is faithful. We see that according to God's character, he is earnest. And when he makes a commitment to do something, he does it completely In order for a true believer to lose their salvation, God must break his promise or even renege or go back on his guarantee. Our security as a believer is rooted in the very character of God. It is rooted in our faithful and powerful God. When we think of God's preservation of his saints, we ought to think of this word security. We need to think about what an amazing, secure salvation we have because of what God has accomplished because of God's amazing salvation. But as mentioned earlier, some Arminians would hold to say, yes, there is security in the salvation, but it doesn't matter how you live from there. Because you have this amazing security, you can live any way you want. So does the Bible intend for us to think that a true believer is free to live any way they want? Is this some sort of irrevocable, infinite, get-out-of-jail-free card that we get? Some even argue that this sort of thinking encourages people to live foolishly and selfishly. So they, they would reject this entire view of even the preservation of God, of his saints, and security. But as we've seen previously, to be truly born again is to be made a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are given new desires 
and are called in Scripture to live in a way, oh, excuse me, we are called in Scripture to live in a way that honors Christ. We are to live that way all the way to the end. The life of the believer is also talked about in Scripture. And when we're talking about from the believer's perspective rather than from what God is doing, we would say that this idea of uh, perseverance of the saints is what we're going to talk about. And this takes us to the second aspect of this doctrine. This is the perseverance of the saints. So let's look at some Scripture verses that talk about the perseverance of the saints. There are several in Scripture, and this is often why we get confused. Some get confused in this doctrine, and they think perseverance just seems very man-centered, and that seems very opposed to a Calvinist sort of view. But we want to be honest with Scripture. We're not trying to hold to a system. We're trying to uphold Scripture. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 reads, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. What Jesus is intending to communicate here, and John picks up this theme over and over again, both in his uh, gospel and his epistles, is that there's idea of true belief does abide. True belief does abide. And he wants to say this because this is what Jesus taught. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So what he's saying is not, if you do this type of work, if you make this sort of effort, then you're really one of me. But what he's saying is, this is the mark of a true disciple. This is the mark of a true disciple. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's commissioning them to go out and tell um, others about the kingdom of heaven. And he's talking about this idea that I was going to be I am persecuted, and so you too will be persecuted. So that's the context of which he's making this statement. In verse 22, he says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end. There's this idea of um, persevering, this idea of endurance comes up and up again. We also see Paul writing um, to the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 1. And in context, Paul's actually talking to a church that he didn't plant. Um, this is a church that he didn't plant. He didn't know these believers personally, but he wanted to write to encourage them. And in verse 21, he says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, to, or reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He says, For this purpose in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And verse 23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. What Paul's reiterating here to an audience of people that he doesn't know purpose, per, personally, excuse me, but what he's trying to communicate here is that there's that idea of an end this end goal of what God is doing in salvation. He's saying the, the, a key test, you could say, that Scripture presents for those that make that end is if indeed you continue in the faith. And what we need to understand is he's not saying these are conditions so that you can really be saved. This is something you need to accomplish or do. But he's saying this is the fruit. This is evidence of true saving faith. This is evidence of being born again. Paul knows that those whose faith is not real will not last. We see this uh, clearly presented also in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. The author writes, For we have come to share in Christ. He says, If indeed 
we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He's saying, and you can flip the statement because there's an if here. He says, we hold our original confidence firm to the end because we have come to share in Christ. There's a past tense statement that starts this clause, and the for is there. He said, this is the causal point. When you see the word for, it's the same idea as because. It says, because we have come to share in Christ, this is the evidence you'll see, that you will hold fast to the original confidence, firm all the way to the end. This is the testimony of Scripture. I like how Grudem, um, Grudem states um, this idea. He says, in all the passages about the need to continue in the faith, the purpose behind it is never to make those who are presently trusting in Christ worry that sometime in the future they might fall away. Rather, the purpose is always to warn, to warn those who are thinking of falling away or have fallen away, that if they do, it is a strong indication that they were never saved in the first place. They were never saved in the first place. Let's look at some more passages that demonstrate this very idea. There's passages in Scripture um, I forgot to make a little animation about falling of superficial saints is what it said. And then they're called false uh, brothers even in Scripture. So let's look in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. Paul's writing says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. So even Scripture presents this idea that there are false brothers Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Paul writes, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In Scripture, it's, it's clearly telling us over and over again there are false brethren, there are false apostles, there are people that present themselves in one way, but there's no real root, no foundation, no new birth in Christ. Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 21 and 23, Jesus is teaching, and right before this he says, you will know them by their fruit. And then he continues uh, by saying these verses, starting in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, he continues, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not, I used to know you, but now I don't. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, we see uh, the parable of the soil, the sower and the seed. And there's four that are presented. There's the soil um, well, it's not really soil. It falls along the path is what it's called. The seed is planted in the path. Um, and then we see a rocky ground. We see um, a thorny ground. And we see good soil. So in these four instances, uh, Jesus actually explains to the disciples ex exactly what he means. He says, the sower sows the word in verse 14. 
And then he says, and the one along the path, the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and he takes away the word that is sown in them. We need to understand that this is someone who shows no evidence. It's never actually taken root in their life. But what we would talk about this morning is really those that kind of show the appearance of being a believer, but there's no new, real uh, new birth inside. And then we would really want to focus on the second and the third, the second and the third soil. And verse 16 says, And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root, he says, in themselves, but endure for a while. This idea of endurance for a while is not communicated to be one that is of salvation. But they endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. They're in it for joy. They're in it for happiness. And when it gets hard, they're realizing this isn't really me. They're evidencing the real roots that they have. And he says that they have no root in Christ. That's the second soil, the rocky ground. The third one, he starts in verse 18. It says, And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves, he says, unfruitful. He says it proves unfruitful. So even though there's an appearance of some sort of growth, he says the proof is in the pudding, right? There's no fruit in your life. And so that means there is no real birth. So he's saying the evidence of a stock growing up isn't enough. The evidence of just um, a root isn't enough. The evidence of the fruit isn't enough. There ought to be all three pieces present. And that's what he articulates in the good soil in verse 20. But those that are sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. And he doesn't just say bear fruit and stop. He says 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. There's this progressive idea of you're going to be growing in godliness. There's this persevering, this, this continuing to mature in Christ. There ought to be fruit in the life of someone who has been given new desires, who has been born again. And so we see in the parable of the sower and the seed that this is the same idea, that there is not some sort of concept presented in this text that there is a believer who was in Christ and then falls away and loses their salvation, but rather there's no evidence showing of real heart change. And we see John writing about this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, And they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, this idea of endurance. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Endurance is an evidence of someone who has been born again, of someone who has received eternal life. Scripture teaches that behavior is an important test of faith, and we see this in, especially in the book of 1 John. Obedience is evidence that one's faith is genuine. If a person remains unwilling to obey Christ, he proves and provides evidence that his faith is in name only. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. A person may claim Jesus as Savior and pretend to obey for a while, but if there is no heart change, 
His true nature, his fallen nature, will eventually manifest itself. True faith always produces a changed life. The inner person is transformed by the Holy Spirit, and the Christian has a new nature. According to Scripture, those with genuine faith follow Jesus. They love the brothers. They obey God's commandments. They do the will of God. They abide in God's word. They do good works, and as we've seen today, they continue in the faith. They continue in the faith. So how do we try to reconcile these ideas? We've talked about the preservation of the saints and the perseverance of the saints. So we're back to the same topic again, right? How is God working and man seem to be working? Like how do we wrap our heads around all that's going on here? So what we're talking about at this stage in the process of salvation, um, in our studies, we're talking about sanctification, okay? We're not talking about justification when you are receiving the new birth and declared righteous by God, positionally righteous by God, for eternity. That's starting right there. But there's this idea that once you've been born again, there's this progress, this progressive saving, this progressive sanctification that you are being made holy. And that's the purpose we saw back in Romans chapter 8, that we would be conformed to the image of his son, that we'd be made like Christ. And we see these, um, this idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility paired up in scripture. And I want to look briefly at a couple verses. Philippians chapter 2 Verse 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And he continues to say, for, again, that that word is important when we're reading through verses. It's a because. For, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I like the way uh, John Murray talks about this concept. He says, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor are working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours, so that in conjunction and coordination of both, the produced result is required. But he says, God works in us and we also work. So we need to say what scripture says here. And he continues to say, but the relation between the two of them is because. Because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. There's a first domino that falls. There's a cause for a desired effect. And God is the one that causes it. So we must depend on him. We must rely on him. And we desire to have this second idea. So if uh, preservation gives this idea of security, we'd say perseverance gives assurance. Perseverance gives assurance of salvation for the believer. That there is fruit in my life evidencing that God has put his spirit in me and is bearing, is producing fruit in the life of a believer for his glory. God's preserving grace empowers your perseverance. That's how these things relate. It's a causal relation. 1 Peter 1.5 says, by God's power, we read this earlier, you are being guarded. It says, by God's power, you're being guarded through faith. So we see, again, this, these idea of juxtapose. You're being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 and 14 Paul is writing his um, final letter. He's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. 
and he's um, on death row in jail, thinking about the, the context of this relationship. And what would you say to somebody who's being handed the baton, that you know you're gonna, your, your, your time is up, the Lord's going to take you home? And he writes, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. God is the one that is guarding it, he says there. And then 13 continues, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he continues in verse 14 by saying, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard, he says, Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. There's this idea that Paul's presenting here that God is guarding it and you, Timothy, are to guard it. Both are present. And he's saying, your guarding is by the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. By the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. I like the illustration that the Scottish Puritan Henry Scougal illustrates by. He says, all the art and industry of man cannot form the smallest herb or make a stalk of corn to grow in the field. It is the energy of nature and the influence of heaven which produces this effect. It is God who causeth the grass to grow and the herb for the service of man. Psalm 104.14. And he says, And yet nobody will say that the laborers of the farmer are useless or unnecessary. We need to uphold what scripture says, and both are presented here. But God is the cause, and we ought to see the effect, the fruit in our own lives. So all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power. That's preservation and security. And all will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And those who perseverance, uh, those only who persevere to the end are truly born again. And that provides for us as believers assurance that God is working in our lives. Salvation is secured for a true believer because their God is faithful. Salvation is assured for the true believer by their faithfulness to God, which is the fruit of the Spirit. So as a final note, if you're thinking through all these um, doctrinal statements, what, what really is my takeaway? What, how do I live? Well, I was thinking of a couple songs briefly to mention to us. One is trust and obey. This is a simple concept for us to all gather as believers, is that we are to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust him and obey. Both of those is what scripture is communicating to us. And then secondly, for the security and the confidence, I thought of the song, I Have a Shelter. Uh, I love the third verse where the um, hymn writer writes, with faithful hands, referring to God, that cannot fail, you, speaking to God, will bring me home to heaven. That's an amazing confidence that the believer can have because God is faithful. He will surely do it. Next week, we're going to wrap up uh, our soteriology study with a third Q&A. So if you have questions, please do email those to us. We'd love to prepare ahead of time to have some prepared responses. If not, come with your questions. We'd love to have kind of a table talk discussion and be able to do that openly. If you have continued questions that you'd seek to study and answer, these are great resources for you to use as well. So we're planning to start our worship service at 1030. And for now, you're dismissed.